The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Advertising is an uncanny thing. So this past week, the words of a particular ad that I'm sure I saw hundreds of times as a child just suddenly came back to me in a moment. The ad was for Sherwin-Williams Paint. And it was quite a simple ad. It was, you know, this kind of deep voice narrator, and you had all these wonderful video images going. And it starts out, we've painted cable cars in San Francisco and satellite tracking systems for GTE. And it catalogs the impressive surfaces uh, on which Sherwin-Williams paints can be found. Now, I can't call to mind the whole commercial, but I do remember the last two lines. They say, Sherwin-Williams is on submarines and even on the Apollo rocket. Chances are we can handle your bathroom. Those of us who are a little bit older are saying that with me. It's scary, the power of advertising. Those of, us who, those of you who are a little bit younger are like, what? I've never heard that in my life. <laughs> So I'm dating myself here. But that commercial is a great example of arguing from greater to lesser. Look at all the amazing things that are beautified and protected by Sherwin-Williams paint. Everything they say is true, but all of it is said so that you'll hear and believe that surely their paint is a good choice for painting your bathroom or your house or your office for that matter. Last week, we came face to face with the exhaustive sovereignty of God as taught by the scriptures. As we beheld this truth in the Bible, as we wrestled with it, particularly with the death of Jesus in view, and as we set our hearts to being served by it, by resting in it. I know that some of you were served during this past week by those truths. What a week it has been, oh my word. But God has been with us, and I know people have told me how the truths we meditated on last week anchored their hearts and comforted their hearts when through surprising things happening, through unexpected things happening, through difficult things happening. And I really have marveled at the kindness of God and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God in just how he has ordered our steps in the past week. But in a sense, I said all of those true things so that you'll hear what the scriptures have to say this week and believe it. God's exhaustive sovereignty extends even to the act of salvation. In saying that, I'm not arguing from greater to lesser. The salvation of undeserving sinners is, in fact, at the heart of God's merciful purposes for the universe as he acts to display his glory. So it would be better to recognize this as an argument from general to specific. So to spell it out for you, God sovereignly, wisely, lovingly, and gloriously governs every detail of the universe he has made. That's a general statement. And that governance includes every aspect of the salvation of undeserving sinners who rebelled against him. That's a specific statement. Here's how we as a denomination express this truth in describing this value, Reformed theology, that is shared by all our churches. At the center of God's purposes in the world is the exaltation of his glory through the redemption of sinners. To this end, we believe that God sovereignly chooses men and women to be saved in order to display his immeasurable grace and glory. God's sovereign grace in salvation humbles us, fills us with gratitude, and compels us to worship him and share the message of his grace to all people. 
My goal this morning is to spell out those truths for you in the scriptures and to point you to the confidence, security, and joy they produce. And we need those, don't we? Jesus promised that we would have trouble in this life. I mean, I don't even think about that promise. What a weird promise. He promised that we would have trouble in this life. But we are fortified to face every trial with joy when we are confident that God's love for us is unshakable. So as we seek to be served by our God in this way, we're going to continue to behold him at work in his sovereignty, but this time with our eyes on how he acts to save a people for himself. We're going to focus on the triune God as Father, Son, and Spirit work together in concert to love sinners to life. And we look at the amazing fruit that that love produces in us. So what we're going to do then is we're going to gather biblical teaching in four containers in order to appreciate it and respond to it. So here are our four containers. The Father's unconditional love. Then the Son's personal love. The Spirit's overcoming love. And finally, we're going to contemplate the fruit of such love. So first, let's fix our eyes on the Father's unconditional love. In Jeremiah 31, 3, God declares his love for his people, Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love. How do we even begin to wrap our heads around that? An everlasting love? I mean, isn't love the most impermanent of things? We fall in love and then we fall right back out of love. We chase our feelings in and out of relationships and unfortunately in and out of marriages even. All in a quest for something that will last, something permanent. Even marriage, when you get it right by God's grace, is ended by death. But God's everlasting love over overcomes and transcends even death, as we'll come to see. You see, we speak and we sing in euphemisms, always and forever. I will always love you. I'm going to love you forever. But God doesn't. When he says it, he means it. And in a way that only one who has always been and always will be can. Let's focus our attention on Ephesians chapter 1 for the next few moments. You can turn there in your Bibles. We'll be back in Ephesians a few times. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, it's page number 917. If you need a Bible right now to look in, um, are the Bibles out there? Okay, somebody's going to grab the Bibles for us. So when you see Jess coming back with the Bibles, if you need a Bible, just wave your hand and she'll give you one. In this passage, in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul contemplates the love of the Father. And it sounds like effusive praise. And that's our goal for you, family. We're not here trying to dot our theological I's and cross our theological T's. We want to stand in front of the magnificent and monumental waterfall of the Father's everlasting, unconditional love and marvel together at it. We want to drink deeply of these waters and be delighted and satisfied and changed. I wish we could give this more time, but today is only going to be a taste of this. So this, then, is Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, and verse 11. So anybody who wants a Bible, just stick a hand up. Jess will bring you one if you're interested. So let's read, then, from Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, and verse 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What I want to do briefly is to point you to several things we can observe about the nature of the Father's love in this passage. The first is that it's an electing love. The Bible uses a range of vocabulary to speak about God's decision to set his love on particular people. Theologians call that election, and all they're doing is picking up on the biblical language. And we see it all over the Bible, in fact. This Deuteronomy 7, 6, for example, says of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Holy, meaning set apart, his treasured possession chosen out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter takes this language and then he applies it strangely enough and wonderfully enough to Gentile Christians whom he wrote to in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Look back for a second at Ephesians 1, verse 4. The Father's love is an eternal love. God decided who he would love in this redemptive way before the foundation of the world, before he made anything, and he will love them forever. If you jump down to Ephesians 2, 7, you'll see that the Father's plan for those on whom he set his love on in Jesus, this plan is, uh, and it says it this way, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This electing and eternal love is a sovereign love. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. His choice of whom to love was according to his own purpose and was consistent with the way he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what we looked at last week. In other words, when it comes to saving people, God does whatever pleases him. Just like he does whatever pleases him in everything else. He is gloriously free to act in love and wisdom and constrained by no one and nothing outside himself as he saves rebels. Finally, the love the Father shows is a gracious love. Look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Grace means that we in no way deserve what we have received from God. The love God has shown us is entirely undeserved, and in bestowing this love on us, he spares us from what we absolutely deserved, his eternal condemnation. Now, some Christians believe that God chose to set his love on them before time began, but that decision was conditioned on something he foresaw in them, like the faith that they would display when he reached out to them in mercy. Now, I understand why this notion of unconditional election is an uncomfortable idea. And I understand why that kind of conditioned choice would be an attractive idea. But it's not something I can find in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures say the opposite. When Romans 8.29 that we read earlier says, Those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
The object of God's foreknowledge, the thing that God foreknows, is us. Not something particular about us. Paul is in fact employing Old Testament love language. The same language God uses in speaking of his choice of Abraham, or of Jeremiah, or of his people Israel. He's not talking about knowing qualities. That would provide no distinction between people. God knew everything about everyone before anyone existed. Paul is talking about God setting his love on particular people before time began. Those people he predestined to become like Jesus, and those people he called, and so on and so forth. Then in Romans 9, he speaks directly against the notion that God's mercy towards us is conditioned on anything about us. In verse 11 of that chapter, in speaking of the twins, Jacob and Esau, he argues that God chose to set his love on Jacob and not Esau, though they were not yet born and had done neither, I'm sorry, and had done nothing either good or bad. God says that, God, Paul says, sorry, that God did this in order that his purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. No, Paul hasn't forgotten the obvious, that God is eternal and knows all things before they happened. Yet, at the same time, he argues for the significance of God's choice before the boys were even born. And then he makes his point in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or receiving God's mercy is not conditioned on anything we desire or anything we do. It depends on him. He has mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy. That is his sovereign freedom. My friend, if you are in Christ, then God has freely and graciously chosen to love you, and he will love you forever. You are safe in this love. You did not earn it, and you cannot lose it. God is committed to overcoming every barrier to his loving you forever. It means that you don't have to pretend to be perfect. That burden has been lifted by God's love. You can face up to who you really are and confess your sins to God and to others without putting them up, knowing that God has chosen to love you, despite how ugly and how stubborn and how stupid and how repetitive our sins are sometimes. You can embrace and even invite correction in your pursuit of holiness and not be devastated by having your faults and your weaknesses and your sins and your failings highlighted because your performance was never the basis of God's love for you. He says to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The Father chose to love us unconditionally in Christ. And when we look at how Jesus, for his part, has loved us, what we'll see is the Son's personal love. What I'm about to say is without a doubt, or almost without a doubt, the most controversial thing I will have said in my preaching for you here at Grace Family Church to date. If you are a believer, when Jesus died and rose again, he saved you. Now, I've borrowed a part of that phrasing from an author by the name of Greg Forster because, frankly, I couldn't think of a clearer or better way to say that. When Jesus died and rose again, he saved you. Now, I'd completely understand if that statement seems innocuous to you, but it is not. And I think you'll come to see that soon. There's a massive difference between what I just said 
and saying something along the lines of, when Jesus died and rose again, he made a way for you to be saved. That second statement means that the cross makes it possible for people to be saved, but doesn't in fact actually save anyone. The first, which is what I want to show you in the scriptures, means that the cross actually saved specific people. And the people whom Jesus personally loved and saved in his death and resurrection are the same people whom the Father unconditionally chose and set his love on. Those two statements capture different understandings of what Jesus did for us on the cross. As one illustration I read points out, it's the difference between a person who makes life vests and the person who dives into the water to save you when you're drowning. The road we're going to spend time on for the next few minutes is a difficult one. And it can be a particularly bewildering one if you've never contemplated these things before. And you might actually wonder, why is this man up here disturbing my peace? So I want to remind you why we're walking this road and to affirm some common ground. I want you to know Jesus' love for you, his personal and particular love, which was expressed in his laying down his life for you. And I want you to be continually comforted and transformed by that love. I want you to be able to sing some of the songs we've been singing together with new clarity and with overflowing joy. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. As your pastor, I am jealous for you to know this deeply personal love and to rest secure in it. Here's some common ground that is established by the scriptures. The cross has secured the offer of salvation for all people. That offer is genuine. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God will not turn anyone away. The problem, as we'll come to see, is entirely on our side. The Bible teaches that God's desire is for all men to be saved, notably in 1 Timothy 2.4, but probably more emphatically in Ezekiel 31.11, where God declares, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's God's heart towards rebels, and we want to emphatically affirm that. Yet Christians, unless they're, what, unless they're what we call universalists, soberly embrace the fact that God is not going to save everyone. That's why funerals that we go to for loved ones and friends who we're, we're, we strongly suspect rejected Jesus are such sad occasions for those of us who believe the gospel. The variance arises in how we account for the difference between what God wants and what God has chosen to do. Or at the very least, what God has chosen to allow. So with that said, let's continue on our road. Why would anyone think that Jesus was personally loving particular people in laying down his life? Well, because Jesus said so. Listen to John 10 verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus' knowledge of his sheep is personal in the same way that his relationship with his father is personal. And he lays down his life for his sheep. In his prayer in John 17, 2, Jesus says that the father gave him authority over all flesh, that's every human being, to give eternal life to all whom the father had given him which of course is the language of election and refers to a subset of humanity. 
Now, I could point out many more texts where the Bible speaks of the personal and particular and exclusive love of Jesus for his people. But I think what would serve you better is to point out a few where this truth is applied in powerful ways. First, I want to remind you of something we came across in Colossians. We walked our way through the whole book of Colossians earlier this year. We noticed in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that when the Bible talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus, it doesn't just speak of Jesus dying and rising for us. It also speaks of us dying and rising with Christ. As believers, we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. And God made us alive together with Christ. And he has forgiven all our trespasses. Remember Colossians 3, 3 to 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The Bible does not speak that way about everyone in the world. It only speaks that way about Christians. All of the commands Paul gives in Colossians are dependent on the saving death and resurrection of Jesus being received as a personal expression of love for you. You see, an impersonal and general love cannot be the basis for personal specific obedience. The Apostle Paul understood this. Listen to how he speaks in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, what I'm calling you to believe today is not in the first place a theological system. It is the most deeply personal love that you can ever know. You can know that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. That love cannot be spoken of in the case of those to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. The point is this. The cross expresses more than a hopeful love, more than a yearning love for everyone. The same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem is the one who will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Now, I cannot resolve that tension for you or for myself. Much less to resolve the tension of how all of what we're contemplating fits with everything else the Bible says about the nature of God's love. And I'm really glad that it's not my job to resolve those tensions. But my job for which I'll be judged by God is not to shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In the scriptures, this personal love of Christ is presented as a powerful and compelling motivation for personal obedience. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 2, sorry, listen to 1 Peter 2, sorry, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. When Jesus died for you personally, he died to make you holy personally. He healed your diseased heart that wanted only sin. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The love of Jesus, which we know personally, creates the personal obligation that we lay down our lives for each other. Because his love was particular and was demonstrated in action, our love for each other must be particular and demonstrated in action. It's not just... We're not just called to have nice feelings about each other in the church. We're called to act and show that love 
When Jesus died and rose again, he saved you. He loved you with a deeply personal love. And the redemption redemption that he purchased for you was enacted by the Holy Spirit. So let's look then at the Spirit's overcoming love. The Spirit's overcoming love. Now one of the massive differences you'll notice if you read the Bible kind of from Old Testament into the New Testament, um, the difference between how God worked in the past, one of the differences at least, and how he's working now under what we call the New Covenant is a new and widespread work of the Holy Spirit. It's anticipated and announced in the Old Testament. Here's one such announcement in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That passage describes the overcoming love of the spirit that I want to unfold for you. What I want you to see is that this work of the spirit is both invasive and effective. God is taking things out of us and putting things into us, removing hardness and deadness and replacing it with responsiveness and life. So we shouldn't be surprised when we hear Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 63 say, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So how then does the Spirit give life? When the Bible teaches about this, one of the metaphors it uses is new birth. It's language that even non-Christians in Jamaica are very familiar with. In John 3, Jesus has a famous conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Here's some of what he said. This is John 3, 7 to 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, unfortunately, um, the poets among us will tell you this. One of the widespread effects of familiarity with a metaphor is that we do not marvel at it much anymore. It kind of just bounces right off us like we didn't say anything that was weird. But if you read from the beginning of John chapter 3, you see that Nicodemus was scandalized by the notion that you must be born again. Even when Jesus explained to him that he was talking about spiritual birth, Nicodemus was still marveling that Jesus could say something like that. And what Jesus described for him is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. The wind or spirit, the words are the same in both Hebrew and Greek, goes where it wants and it does what it wants. You're aware of his work because you see the effect of it. And that's what happens in the case of everyone who is born of the Spirit. Speaking of being born, I want to tell you about Raphael Samuel. Raphael Samuel is a 27-year-old businessman who lives in Mumbai, India, and he believes that it was wrong for his mother and father to create him without his consent. So he's planning to sue them. And no, this is not fake news. I read articles about this from two traditional, reputable news sources, and that was just in February of this year. Isn't truth stranger than fiction? So despite what you might suspect, Raphael Samuel is not an idiot. So what is the thinking behind this lawsuit? Here's a quotation from one article. Mr. Samuel, of course, understands that our consent can't be sought before we are born, but insists that it was not our decision to be born. So as we didn't ask to be born, we should be paid for the rest of our lives to live, he argues. 
So here's the thing. As absurd as Mr. Samuel's thinking seems to be, it can help us to think about and to see some things about ourselves. The overcoming love of the Spirit that I'm tracing in the Scriptures for you has also been called irresistible grace. But if I use that term with many who are dear to me, who are dear brothers and sisters in Christ, they are as scandalized as Nicodemus was when he was talking to Jesus. And it's not that they don't believe in an invasive work of the Spirit. They very much do. It's not that they don't believe that we must be born again. What they believe is that our consent must be sought before we are born spiritually. That is, before God causes us to be born again. No, I understand that way of thinking. I grew up in church and in many Christian spaces, and one of the things I remember explicitly being taught is that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. What they meant is that the Spirit would never force himself on you. He wins you by wooing you. He holds out his hand, as it were, and invites you into his love. And that's beautiful. It sounds so right. But the problem with the illustration isn't how it pictures the Spirit. The problem is how it pictures us. You see, in reality, in order to save us, the Spirit had to overcome a lot more than our unfriendliness or our unwillingness or reservations and our skepticism. In order to save us, the Spirit had to overcome the fact that we were dead. I hope your Bibles are still open to Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 2, some verses in chapter 2. So just look at the first three verses in chapter 2. I'm just going to walk through what they talk about. These verses describe what God had to overcome to cause us to be born again. They, they talk about the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were unresponsive, at least unresponsive to God. In our zombified state, we were walking, living out our deadness under the influence of Satan and this world and our own sinful desires. We were by practice and by nature children fully deserving of God's wrath. In Colossians, we learned that we were separated from God. We were opposed to Him and we were doing what He hated. In that state, it is impossible for us to respond to the gospel, not because God puts barriers in our way, but because we hate God and we love our sin. And we cannot trust God or turn from our sin unless God does something to change our state. And to be fair to my brothers and sisters that I mentioned before, who have spent any time learning about this, they believe that God does do something. They believe that when the gospel is preached, God intervenes in such a way that those who hear it are made able to respond to it, but not compelled to do so. The main problem with that explanation is that it's not what we see in the Bible. Look at Ephesians 2, 4-5. These verses come right after Paul describes our state in our sinfulness. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God does intervene. And what he does is he makes us alive together with Christ as an expression of his great love and his grace. We were dead, but suddenly we're alive. God loved us with a love that overcame our deadness, our indifference, or our, and our hostility towards Him, and gave us new life in Christ, and a new heart with new desires and new appetites, so much so that every now and then we are amazed that we want to do what pleases God. So let's go back to our gentlemanly Holy Spirit and our friend Mr. Samuel for a moment. 
Mr. Samuel hits the nail on the head. We didn't ask to be born. We couldn't. The Holy Spirit doesn't wait for our consent, not because he's rude, but because our consent can't be sought before we are born. He doesn't stand by the side of the pool, politely making the offer of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, if we're willing, of course, to undergo such an intimate and invasive procedure, while we are lying dead at the bottom of the pool. No, he acts to secure our salvation with a love that overcomes every obstacle that kept us from God. It is necessarily invasive, and it is absolutely and gloriously effective. We are saved through the Spirit's overcoming love. And because the triune God is acting together in perfect harmony to save us, this love of the Spirit comes to everyone whom the Father chose and whom the Son died for. We have examined the Father's unconditional love, the Son's personal love, and the Spirit's overcoming love. Now I want to point you to the fruit of such love. The unconditional, personal, overcoming love of God bears much fruit in the lives of those whom he loves. It's truly a life-changing love. It impacts our hearts and our actions and our perspectives and our priorities and our loves and our hates. Nothing is left the same as we apprehend this love more and more fully. We've already started to see the fruit of this love. We already talked about the personal assurance that grows from embracing God's love as being set on you before you existed and Jesus' death as being for you personally and the Spirit's love which overcame your resistance to Him. We've already seen how this becomes a powerful motivation for you personally responding to God's commands. We've seen in Ephesians 1 that this love springs up into praise to the praise of His glorious grace. And it's not some fleeting expression of praise either. It's a river of praise that gets deeper and wider as it flows into eternity. That's why the saving grace of God is a dominant theme in the songs we're teaching you to sing. Earlier we sang, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. The God who sovereignly saves us is worthy of all of our praise, forever. But what other fruit is born by this love? If you've been tracking with me all the way, you might have noticed that we haven't given attention to some things that are very important when it comes to salvation. We haven't yet talked about faith and repentance. And my contention is that faith and repentance are properly located in this container. They are the fruit of God's redeeming love the fruit of salvation. No, faith and repentance are absolutely necessary and they are done by us. The Holy Spirit does not trust Jesus for us or repent on our behalf. But faith and repentance are not the acts of dead men, as if in our flesh we are capable of doing such things which please God. Faith and repentance are gifts from God. That's why Paul says here in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, I'm not doing any linguistic gymnastics to include both, both grace and faith under this, the this which is not of our own doing. The New Testament writers, in fact, resonate with this. It's why Luke, in writing in the book of Acts, speaks without apology of God opening Lydia's heart to pay attention to the gospel, leading to her conversion. Or when people responded to the gospel, says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
It's why in Acts, even the Jewish Christians were skeptical and prejudiced against Gentiles. After hearing the story of the conversion to Christ of Cornelius and his Gentile family and friends, worshipped God and said, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, if all this is new to you, or if you've never heard it articulated quite like this before, I wouldn't be surprised if you're wrestling with it. And that would be fine. In fact, that would be good. Many people don't come to understand the doctrines of grace without significant wrestling. We, your elders, certainly didn't. And as we move towards membership, we want to be clear that you can join this church even while you are wrestling through these things. We welcome your questions. We will embrace you with all your doubts. Doubts are not a problem as long as you're not demeaning or, dis or, or divisive. And if you're wrestling through these things, here's a question that I think is helpful to consider. Who plays the ultimate decisive role in your being saved? When you think about it, surely there are a lot of events and circumstances and people involved in your coming to faith. Maybe vacation Bible school. Maybe a parent or a grandparent who prayed for you. Uh, perhaps a friend who shared the gospel with you or invited you to church. Maybe your family of origin played a significant role. Maybe there was a crisis in your life that moved you towards God. I don't know what's on your list. But even when we grant all that, if Keisha, for instance, comes to faith and Tanisha doesn't, what ultimately is the difference between them? When you dig all the way down, I think there are only two answers that one can offer to that question. Ultimately, decisively, it was either that it was, I, sorry, let me say that again. Let me say that. I want to say that clearly. So ultimately and decisively, either it was something we did, even if that thing was a minute part of the whole equation, even if in the grand scheme of things, God did 99.99999% of the work, or ultimately and decisively, it was something that God did. The doctrines of grace say that God has done all the work and that he deserves all the glory. That's why we can sing that we come to God through faith alone and that we are saved by grace alone and then sing Gloria, Gloria, glory to God alone. And that leads to another fruit of God's sovereign saving love, courage in mission and prayer. We can share the gospel with others and participate in mission all over the world with the confidence that God is saving a people through the gospel. We can resist the temptation to ambush people or to be manipulative because he is the one doing the work through the means of evangelism and prayer, means that he ordained. Think about it. When we pray for the salvation of people, when you cry out to God for your brother or your parent or your co-worker, aren't you asking God to actually save them? Or are we asking that God should make them savable but not go so far as to actually save them? Sometimes our prayers are better calibrated theologically than our thinking. I want you to pray with confidence for the salvation of others, knowing that God is fully able to save them. I want you to learn to pray from the scriptures, that God would cause them to be born again, that he would give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them, that he would grant them repentance, that he would open their hearts to hear and believe the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a believer, I have been praying for you that way. Will you put your trust in Jesus today? Will you turn from your rebellion and trying to fix yourself up before God and others and receive the gift of full acceptance and eternal life from God? 
we would love to help you do so. So if you have questions, please talk to me or to Sheldon or to Sean after the service. If you will put your faith in Jesus, you'll find these words to be true for you. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Being loved like this leads to humility. It is unfortunate and inconsistent that humility is not often associated with Calvinism. I myself have been guilty of pride and arrogance in the past. But the solution is not to abandon or marginalize these precious biblical truths. The solution is to understand them more fully. Timothy George counsels, of all people, Calvinists should know that whatever understanding we have obtained into the mystery of divine grace, we have received in the same way we have received salvation itself, as a sheer gift. This means that we should be patient and gentle with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are where we once were in our journey towards a fuller understanding. So as Kevin DeYoung asks, have the doctrines of grace made you a more gracious person? That's how we want to hold these things here in Grace Family Church and with the other believers who surround us. Let's be known first for our love for the gospel. And let's not repay evil for evil and demeaning comment for demeaning comment. There's one more fruit I'd like to point out. Perseverance. The Bible says that he who endures to the end will be saved. It also says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Jesus will not lose any of those the Father has given him. We are called to persevere in that preserving grace. That's why we can sing, I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. God saves sinners. In our salvation, the Father, Son, and Spirit work in perfect unity. The Father planning our salvation and setting His love on us unconditionally. The Son loving and saving us personally in His death and resurrection. And the Spirit applying the benefits of salvation to us with His overcoming love. And this love bears all kinds of wonderful fruit in our hearts and lives. These are lofty truths. I don't know if you found them comforting or disconcerting, but I hope you've realized a couple of things. I hope you've realized that how you've been taught about matters of salvation, whether by carefully laid out teaching or by osmosis or by omission, has had a formative impact on your understanding of it. I hope you're beginning to recognize the powerful impact of different schools of Christian thought even if you weren't aware of how they shape those from, who you learned, from whom you learned about Jesus. Finally, I hope you realize that there's much to consider in regards to these matters of salvation. We don't need to obsess about them, but they are worthy of prayer and study and patient conversation because he is worthy of that. One of Pastor Sean's favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's much that God does not tell us about salvation. There's much mystery. But what he does reveal belongs to us. It is given to serve us now. Sure, we will understand it better by and by, but God means for you to be served right now by all the truths that he has chosen to reveal in his word. So let these truths serve you. Let them dwell deep within you, infusing your obedience with a heart that delights in him and is confident of his unshakable, unconditional, personal, overcoming love.
Such obedience is, in and of itself, the fruit of that love. We love him because he first loved us. May you always rejoice in his love. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.